It's a real blessing for me personally. Hey, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben. I'm part of the staff team here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you in tonight. And uh, tonight, what we're doing is we're kicking off a mini-series for Easter. So we're preparing our hearts and our minds for the Easter season. So if you don't know much about church calendars and that sort of thing, today is what we call Palm Sunday. You might notice palm branches on the stage. Today is one week before Easter, and not long before Easter, Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people came out to praise him with palm branches and singing. And that's what we call today Palm Sunday. And uh, we're actually looking at the Bible text in John that looks at this event. It's in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, if you want to open there. And uh, it's so good for us to look at this text tonight because it deals with the identity of Jesus. And I say this is good because the Easter season is something that many of us have celebrated for years. And so it is easy to just overlook the significance and meaning of the season. It's kind of like the more you see something, the less you notice it. I imagine this is what it would be like if, if you worked as a security guard in the Louvre Museum in Paris. You know, at first, when you see the Mona Lisa, you'd be enthralled, you'd be captivated, you'd probably want to go and check it out and, and, and have a look at it and its beauty and the thousand different stories behind her face. But as you work there day after day, year after year, it becomes a little more dull to you, it becomes just another frame on the wall, something that's not all that special. And I think that's kind of the trap we can fall into during Easter time. We become so familiar with this season that we forget to take the time to slow down and think on who Jesus is and what he did. We need to remember and reflect on this so we can grasp the meaning and the beauty of Easter. Now, this is critical. If we don't do it, we may not only grow dull towards the painting of Easter, we may misunderstand it altogether. Now, for those of us who are not Christian in here tonight, you may be in even more danger of misunderstanding Easter. And I say this simply because Easter is such a widespread cultural holiday. There are so many messages out there about what Easter is about, whether it's chocolate or bunnies or whatever it might be. And so we can easily misunderstand the significance of the season. Misunderstandings can cause a lot of problems for us. Sometimes those problems are pretty harmless. Other times, though, the consequences can be very large. I should know because I can remember a time when I had a misunderstanding about someone's identity and it didn't go too well for me. You know, I used to be a youth leader here when I was a teenager. I was a youth leader here at our youth group at this church. And on Friday nights, we would do stuff with the students. And on this particular Friday night, we took all of our group to skate away at Albany Creek, the skating rink down there. And I was having a lot of fun. I tend to get into things. I was hyped up, full of energy. And uh, I skated up to one of my other friends. And he said, oh, there's a new guy. I want to introduce you to him. And as we got up to this guy, he said, oh, do you remember that teacher at school that we used to have? And before he could say anything else, I blurted out, oh, yeah, she was so boring. But for some reason, neither of them laughed. And uh, slowly my friend turned to me and said, uh, that's his mum. Ben. Man, I was so embarrassed. I felt terrible. I just blurted out this silly thing. And um, 
Not only did I make a fool of myself, but the reason I made the fool of myself was because I didn't realize who this new guy was. I didn't realize his identity, and so I made a huge mistake and a massive fool of myself. I learned not to open my mouth when you've got nothing good to say. Now, when it comes to Jesus, we cannot afford to make mistakes about his identity. And the reason I say this is because he makes huge claims about who he is. So we need to, all of us need to slow down and pay careful attention to him tonight. All of us need to listen carefully to what God is saying through John chapter 12. Let's read verses 12 to 13. And if you're taking notes, uh, the first point that we're looking at is that some people believe Jesus is their personal problem solver. Some people believe Jesus is their personal problem solver. All right, verses 12 to 13. I'll read them for us. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, from the outset, these verses look hugely positive. I mean, people are out in the streets, they're praising Jesus. There's a reason that these verses are often called the triumphal entry. It seems like a high point in Jesus' life on earth. So when I tell you that the crowd were actually deeply confused about who Jesus was in this moment, it might surprise you. You might think, what do you mean? They're praising him, aren't they? Isn't that how people should respond to Jesus when they understand him correctly? Well, yes, they're praising him, but their praise is actually coming from a false idea about him. They're praising him for someone he isn't, and if you ask me, that's not really any praise at all. Now, let me show you why I'm saying this. Later on in our chapter, Jesus talks to the same crowd about his death, but this doesn't compute with the identity they've given to him, so they answer, but we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? By lifted up, they're talking about the kind of death. He said, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. They're saying, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross? They're confused. They didn't understand. They, they didn't realize who Jesus actually was. And John says in a few verses later, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So what were they doing on Palm Sunday, praising him? What did they actually believe about him? Well, as we dig a little deeper, we'll see that this scene is terribly ironic. The crowd got the identity of Jesus so right and yet so wrong. Let me show you what they got right first. Let's go back to verse 13 where they said of Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that phrase that I just read comes from Psalm 118, and uh, apparently Jews back in that day, they recited a lot of scripture, and this is one of those Psalms they recited often, they knew it well, and uh, let me read to you from verses 25 to 26 of that Psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And those two words, save us, that I've got underlined there, in Hebrew, this is how they sound, Hoshiana, Hoshiana. So 
Hosanna is literally just the, the Hebrew word there that means save us. And by this point in history, it had become a form of praise. And so the crowds, they were praising Jesus as this savior figure of Psalm 118, this person who they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising Jesus as the savior figure. And they probably thought this person was God's promised Messiah or king, just like they said, even the king of Israel. Now, they believed this promised king would usher in all of God's blessings that God had promised them. And so the title they gave to Jesus was actually completely correct. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was God's chosen king. But he was not the kind of king they expected. Their understanding of the Messiah, of the king, was wonky. Yes, he was going to usher in God's blessings, but not in a way that they had ever imagined. So how do they think that Jesus would usher in God's blessings? And here's the part where we talk about what they got wrong about Jesus' identity. Well, the first clue comes in the fact that the people took branches of palm trees. Now, palm branches had become a national symbol by this point in time. They had become a symbol of military victory, actually. You see, about 100 years before Jesus, a book called 1 Maccabees was written, and in chapter 13, a Messiah, Savior-type figure called Simon also came to Jerusalem, just like Jesus did in our verses tonight. And what Simon did was liberate the city through a military victory. Let me read to you a little bit from uh, 1 Maccabees so you can see it. The Jews entered it, that's Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs. Why? Because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So you kind of see what the crowds might have been thinking about Jesus. At this point in history, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And so they thought Jesus would be the Messiah who would deliver them from this foreign power. They thought Jesus was going to work a military victory for them like Simon did in 1 Maccabees. They thought Jesus was a military king. But if you know anything about Jesus, you know that what he came to do in Jerusalem completely contradicted these expectations. And this is why the crowds got it horribly wrong. And this is why we need to be so careful to slow down and think about Jesus together tonight. Because these crowds were staring at him. And yet they got it completely wrong. They thought Jesus was going to be their military hero. They thought Jesus was going to be their national problem solver. But Jesus made no promises to solve things they way, the way they wanted him to. He was not the king that they had imagined he would be. But he was the king nonetheless. And the thing is, we still misunderstand Jesus in this way today. In fact, it's probably worse in some ways because we've miniaturized Jesus. We've individualized him. We've made him even smaller. So for many of us, he is our personal problem solver. We might not think Jesus will engage in military warfare with our enemies, but we do often think that Jesus is the one that we go to when we need that job or when we need that promotion. We treat Jesus like he exists primarily to give us a happy marriage, a healthy body, a successful life. 
But as Alan Burns, another preacher, says, Jesus is not a ticket to eternal life or a ticket to a mansion in heaven or a get-out-of-hell-free ticket or a ticket to a better marriage or to be cancer-free, nor is he the key to a new car or house or job. Jesus is the ticket to get Jesus. If you are not completely satisfied in having only Jesus, you don't want Jesus as your saviour. So we really need to ask ourselves how we think about Jesus. Because we don't want to make the same mistake of just treating him like our personal problem solver. We want the real Jesus here tonight, right? So how do we avoid this error? How do we know if we've made the mistake of minimizing Jesus to a personal problem solver in our lives? Well, here's some questions that might help. Are your prayers really only ever self-centered? Do your prayers consist really only of requests for yourself? You know, God, keep me safe in the road. God, protect me from pain. God, please give me that promotion. God, please help me find a partner, a wife, a husband. If your prayers only ever consist of requests for yourself, if you go to Jesus simply because you believe he will fulfill your vision of a successful life, a full bank account, happy family, healthy body, then that should send a few alarm bells off. If any of that resonates with you, I urge you, pray about it, think about it. We, we cannot get the identity of Jesus wrong. Some of us do tend to identify Jesus as our personal problem solver, and this is deeply problematic. Timothy Keller, he explains it this way. He says, Christ will work for you, Christ will help you, only if you are true to him, whether he works for you or not. You must not come to him because he is fulfilling, though he is, but because he is true. If you seek to meet him in order to get your needs met, you will not meet him or get your needs met. To become a Christian is not to get help for your agenda, but to take on a whole new agenda, the will of God. You must obey him because you owe him your life, because he is your creator and redeemer. And church, the reason... I want to highlight this for us tonight is because I'm concerned about the Western church. In the West, we, we're pretty rich and consumerism is all around us. It's in our advertising, it's in our TVs. And in some ways, it tends to infiltrate the church. I mean, you don't have to go far to find a preacher who will say, if you just have enough faith, God will give you abundance and blessing. You don't have to go far to hear someone that will say to you, God wants to help you be successful in what you have planned for your life. I'm worried about that. Now, I'm not saying that God would never give us health or other good things. But here, I want to be crystal clear. This is what I am trying to say. I'm just trying to say that Jesus will not allow us to make him our personal problem solver. He will not be miniaturized like that. He may not be the king the crowds had hoped for, but he is the king no less. And unless we want to be like the crowd who ended up crucifying him because he didn't fit with their agenda, we need to lay down our desires before him and submit to him and his agenda. He is the king. We need to want Jesus just for Jesus, just because he is that good. 
Now, I believe the people who seem to understand this best are the Christians in the persecuted church. It costs them dearly to follow Jesus. And so they might not see any earthly benefits in this life for choosing to follow him. But they choose him anyway because they have discovered that he himself is a treasure beyond comparison. He is worthy. I'd love for you to listen to a story about a persecuted Christian who's going to come on the screen now. And the guy who tells it, his name's Mike Gore. He's the CEO of Open Doors, an organization who helps the persecuted church. And he's going to tell a story about one of our Christian brothers in North Africa. One of the most incredible stories I've ever heard from the persecuted church of a Christ-centered passion about this guy called Peter from North Africa. He was arrested when police stormed into the secret Christian gathering that he was attending. He was caught and held for six years without charge in some of the most horrific conditions I've ever heard of. On one occasion, Peter was locked in a cell so narrow that he could only lie down. Essentially a coffin. For five months. They took him straight from this coffin and placed him in an underground cell, completely dark. And they left him there for a further six months. When they finally pulled him out of this hole, he said not only was he almost completely blind, but his legs were paralyzed. And over the coming months, by the grace of God, he says, my sight returned and my legs were healed. The police would regularly pull him in and say, Peter, we want you to sign this piece of paper, which literally said, I will not speak about Jesus. I will not meet with Christians. And on each occasion, he would refuse to sign it. One day, Peter and two fellow Christian inmates resolved to escape. With no shoes and just the clothes on their backs, under a hail of gunfire, they ran for their lives. In fact, Peter didn't stop walking for more than 200 kilometers until he reached the relative safety of a refugee camp. And as he spoke about the last six years of his life, he said he realized that not only had he lost his freedom, but he lost time. He said, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm I'm not trained. I'm that educated. I may never get married or have a family of my own. But then he stopped and smiled and he said, but I still have Jesus and he's worth it all. Every time I hear that story, it moves me so much. And I imagine that if Peter was here tonight, he wouldn't want us to feel sorry for him. He would want to testify to us that Jesus is worth it all that he was worth the imprisonment, he was worth the torture because Jesus is a treasure beyond comparison. And the question for us in the West is do we know Jesus in this way? Do we believe this? Is Jesus worthy to us? Or do we simply believe he is our personal problem solver? That's our first point from John 12, and I want us to think about that. Some people believe Jesus is their personal problem solver. The second point we see is that some people believe he is a threat 
to their plans. Some people believe he's a threat to their plans. In our passage tonight, these people are the Pharisees. Look at John 12 verse 19 with me where it says, The Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they see the crowds come out of Jerusalem and praise Jesus and they say to each other, You're gaining nothing. Now what do they mean by that? Well, in the previous chapter, the Pharisees had had enough of Jesus. So this is what they said about him. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they made a plan. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So since the previous chapter, the Pharisees have been trying to find and arrest Jesus in order to put him to death. And the reason is because they were having some of the same misconceptions as the crowd did. They didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, but they, like the crowd, did seem to think that he was going to stir up some kind of military uprising. And although they probably loathed the fact that they were under Roman control, just like any other Jew, they knew that only someone who was truly from God would be able to perform a miracle, like defeating Rome. And they believed that Jesus was not that person. They did not think he was from God. So if Jesus did start some kind of uprising, the Romans would unquestionably crush it in their eyes. And if this happened, the Romans would come knocking on the religious leaders' doors and remove them from their position of influence in Israel because they would have failed to stop the people from rising against Rome. Hence why they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they believe Jesus was a threat to their plans for themselves and for their country. They thought he was this overly zealous radical who threatened the peace and prosperity of Israel. They thought he was a threat to be eliminated, a dangerous person to be stopped. And, and when you slow down to think about it, in some ways, we still think the same way today. Now, hear me out here. We saw earlier that we sometimes try to use Jesus to fulfill our plans and dreams, but there are times when we see him as a threat to our plans and dreams, especially when we start to understand who he really is. I mean, when this happens, we realize that he could be very dangerous to our plans to get the dream home, to get married, to excel in our careers. Why? Because Jesus has an agenda that is far greater than the Australian dream. He could very well ask us to sacrifice this dream for his glory. He could ask us to sell valuables and to give the proceeds to others. He could ask us to move into a shoddy house in a disadvantaged neighborhood so that we can reach people with the gospel. His agenda is far greater than our personal gain and comfort. And so when we understand this, we realize that this Jesus can be a threat to our plans in life. And we can be tempted to avoid him, to ignore him, even reject him. So while we sometimes try to use Jesus to fulfill our plans, we can also tend to think of Jesus as a threat to our plans. And you see, both the crowd and the Pharisees, they got things right and wrong about Jesus. Yes, he, he may very well solve some of our personal problems, but he's not our personal problem solver. He will not be ruled by us. He is the king. Yes, he may threaten our plans in life. He may decide to do things in ways that we would never have imagined, never have wanted to do them. 
But that doesn't mean that he is our enemy. That doesn't mean that he isn't ultimately for our good. The truth is, Jesus is not our personal problem solver. And he's not merely a threat to our plans for personal gain, but rather, Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is a humble king, a good king who rescues us, not through sheer military power, but by dying for us. Jesus is a humble king. You see, when the people started gathering together, they they got palm branches and they came out to praise him. They started quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus responded by getting on a donkey. This is what it says in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, why did Jesus do this? Well, he did this to correct their misconceptions. You see, if you want to be known as a military king coming in strength and power, you don't choose a baby donkey to make your entrance. D.A. Carson, he's a scholar, a really famous scholar of the New Testament. He said, you would have chosen like a war horse. If he rode in a war horse, he would have whipped the crowd's political aspirations into a revolutionary frenzy. But he didn't do that. He chose to enter Jerusalem humble, mounted on a donkey. Jesus was the crowd, was the Messiah that the crowd did not expect. They imagined he would deliver them by putting their enemies to death, but instead he delivered them by putting himself to death. The Pharisees were right to think that Jesus would overthrow Israel's enemies. But Jesus' enemies were not ultimately Rome or the religious establishment. His enemies were Satan, sin, death. He came to defeat the spiritual powers of evil. He came to deal with the sin barrier between us and God. He came to conquer death. But he did this in a way no one expected. Jesus was the humble king who won victory through suffering. He embraced pain and cruelty to give us healing and peace. He chose the lowly, humble path to set us back on the narrow path that leads to life. He took on our sin and our shame so that through simple, humble faith in him, we can be made right with God again. Jesus was the king that no one expected, but he was the king that everyone needed. And this is why when it comes to Jesus, church, we, we cannot afford to get his identity confused because we may miss out on what he was doing for us altogether. He doesn't promise to deal with all of our smaller personal problems, but he did deal with our ultimate problems. He may threaten our plans and dreams for this life, but he does this that we might receive true life. Jesus is for us, not against us. He is the humble king that we need. The king of the universe didn't come in pride and power and pomp. No, he lowered himself to the level of a servant and came and suffered and died on a Roman cross in our place. He is that gracious. He is that humble. He is that loving. And he is the solution 
to our problems. He is the deliverance that we need. And you know what? Tonight, he is here. His presence is among us and he is available. The humble King Jesus loves you and wants to truly help you. But we also need to know that if we choose him, he will ask us to lay everything down. You see, just a few verses after our passage, there were a few Greeks that wanted to see Jesus. They seemed interested in this promising teacher. And this is what Jesus said in response to their request. He said, whoever loves his life will lose it. Let me find my slide. Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, if you want me, you will have to give up on your life in this world. You'll have to lay that down, but you'll receive true life in me. If you want me, you'll have to give up on your desires and your self-centered plans, and you have to give them over to me, but I am life everlasting, and that is what you will gain if you do. Jesus asks us to lay everything down if we want to follow him, but he promises to give us more than this world could ever offer us. And so the question is, will we follow this kind of church, this kind of king here at BPCC? Do you see, like Peter from Eritrea did, that Jesus is worth it all? That's a question that you and I need to answer. You see, before any of us even had the opportunity to respond to him, he laid down his life for us. He is not just any king. He is a humble king, a good king, a loving king. He is for you. He just won't be ruled by you. And that's a good thing (laughs) because he loves you more than you love yourself and he knows what is best for you and for me. And if you haven't grown to trust just how good his heart is yet, spend a little more time with him. Come along next week as we look at what he did for us after he entered Jerusalem. I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, help us to grasp who you are in this place tonight. Come and speak to each of us, Holy Spirit. Lord, we... We want to know you for who you really are. Lord, set our eyes on you. Be our treasure in this church. We want to declare that you are worth it all. We want to declare that you are worth more than the Australian dream. Lord, when temptations come up to choose that over you, help us, Lord, to see that you are the treasure. Lord, lead us. This is going to look different for each and every one of us. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, that you would show us what you want our lives to look like. Father, we thank you for what you did. We thank you that you are humble at the very center of your heart. And you chose to lay down your life for ours. And for this, we thank you. And for this, we worship you. And I just want to pray, Lord, for any friends here tonight that don't know you yet, that aren't sure about you. Lord, I pray for them. We just want to pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would just draw them into your arms, into your family tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, 
Good Friday is coming up next week. So come along to our 9 a.m. service on Friday because we're going to take a closer look at what Jesus did for us after he entered Jerusalem. But right now, we have the opportunity to take part of the Lord's Supper. So whoever the stewards are for tonight, my helpers, if you could come up and prepare when you're ready. And the Lord's Supper, this table here, is a visible display of what our humble King Jesus did for us on Good Friday. The elements represent what Jesus did for us at the cross. The bread, that represents His body that He gave for us. The carpet represents His spilled blood on our behalf. And when we partake in this, we we look to the past, we remember Jesus' death, that He humbled Himself to death even on a cross to deal with our ultimate problems. We look to the present, we, we celebrate that we now have communion with God and with each other. And we look to the future, to that day when we will feast with God, to that day when He will establish His rule and His reign over this entire world. You see, the Lord's Supper, it communicates to us that because of Christ's death, we now have a way to deal with our ultimate problems. Through faith in Jesus, we can find forgiveness and restored relationship with God again. It's not because of anything we've done, it's all because of Him. And this is what Jesus said about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So who can come to the Lord's Supper? Who can come to the table? Anyone who has genuine sorrow over their sins? Anyone who has genuine faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? Anyone who is genuinely thankful for all that God has done for us in Christ? You see, this table, it's not for perfect people, but it is for those who have genuinely put their faith in Jesus. And if that's you, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And I'm going to ask these two middle sections to come through the middle and go back to your seats that way. And the two outer sections come from the outside and go back to your seats that way. All right. Everything is ready, church. Come, collect the elements, and then we'll sit down in our seats and we'll eat and drink together. Come, all things are ready.